We're about ready to finish the first chapter. We've been on First uh, Peter one for short fourteen months. No, I'm only kidding. But we it's it's taken a while to to work through this. If you're following in the uh, notes packet, we're on page uh, five, and I only draw your attention to the way I've outlined this because obviously there are a lot of ways to outline any book of the Bible, but. Uh, I preached through it, so you can maybe recognize the alliteration, but the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1 is God's plan, and it focuses on his sovereign plan. And the second part, verses 13 through 25, which is where we are, I've called this the product. And again, that's in your notes, just as as a way to think about it. And we're at the third intended product, and and I'm trying to use a 21st century word to capture how Peter is organizing this. What's God, among other things, what was God's intent in redeeming us? Well, that we would live a life of hope and holiness, and that's we discussed that quite a bit last week and even a little bit the week before, a life of reverence before God, 17 through 21, which, again, we, we spent quite a bit of time. And today, it's a life of love. Now, that is not an unusual thought in the Bible. The Bible is filled with the proposition that God is love. I, my, always, I always am drawn to, in my thinking, to 1 John chapter 4, where twice in that little chapter you see the statement, the declarative statement, God is love. And so what comes to mind then, and this is really what Peter is doing, He's, he's thinking of the words of Jesus in the upper room. Since you love me, keep my commandment. Since you love me. And Jesus also said in that same address, they will know you are my disciples when they see you loving one another. That the mark, the mark of the Christian's lifestyle is first and foremost love. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, the first fruit is love the longest chapter devoted to trying to unpack what agape love looks like is 1 Corinthians 13. I could go on and on. But what I draw your attention again to how verse 22 begins. I'm in chapter 1, verse 22. Please note how Peter does this. He anchors this in a theological principle. Having purified your soul. Now, that's, that's Peter's way of saying, now that you are justified, now that you're pure, now that you're righteous, now that you're holy, remember, that's our position. Romans chapter 6 is a wonderful exposition of that. So Paul, Peter appeals to our position, having purified your soul, by how? By your obedience to the truth. And the truth, we'll see down in end of verse 25, again, is the gospel. You've responded in obedience to the gospel. You're now declared righteous. How should that affect how I live? For in sincere brotherly love, love one another. And I told you last week what Peter is doing here is he's using... Two words for love. My goodness, what color is that? That's well, anyway. I'm not used to writing with 
chartreuse <laughs> or whatever that is. But the first word, and that's why ESV is what I'm reading from, has really captured that correctly, brotherly love. This is the affection, the word of affection. Uh, you know, we get our word Philadelphia from that. Phileo aldophos. But anyway, so phileo is a Greek word of its affection. Therefore, brotherly love, that's a good way to capture that. Because of your affection for one another, this should affect agape, which is an other-centered self-sacrificial way of relating to one another. When Jesus says, when, when he's answering a question of the Pharisees, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word he's using. So it's a, because of your affection for one another, because you're in the family, the affection for one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, you should therefore, in a self-sacrificial, other-centered, never thinking of yourself, in a non-selfish, I'm trying to say the same thing over and over again, love one another. And notice what, notice, notice what he says. Earnestly, it's trying to capture, love one another in a self-sacrificial way, earnestly, honestly, forthrightly, you're not faking it, you're not manipulating, you're not controlling, earnestly, from a pure heart. Peter just, he has this knack of dumping in a verse all of these really important words. And we have to take the time to unpack every one of these important words. That's why it's going to take us till 2024 to finish this book. <laughs> now let's work our way back. He uses the word heart. Greek, it's cardia. We get a cardiologist from that word. But what does, it's obviously a metaphor. He's not talking about that organ that's here in the center of my chest pumping the blood through my body. That's not what he's talking about. So in the Bible, and this is both Old and New Testament, when the Bible uses the word heart, what does it mean? It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. But if you don't unpack that, you never really quite understand how the Bible's using the term. So let's take a minute or two and unpack it. What does the metaphor of heart mean? And I'm not necessarily, it's rhetorical, but if you know or you want to share it, don't, don't hesitate to do that. Rob? I, I don't know, but certainly we think of heart when we, we think of love, you know, the, the, the text or electronic shorthand. And that was that was very much uh, that was very much the case in the ancient world in in the Greek uh, Greco-Roman myths. Cupid was one of their gods, a minor type god, but you know Cupid, you know the arrow, you know all that stuff. So they they yeah they did associate love and the heart. Um, so what does that mean now? The heart is the the core of the body, essential to sustaining the body, pumping the blood everywhere. And if the heart, if you don't have the heart, you don't, you don't exist. Okay. How about soul? Soul was it supposed to be the soul? I think there's some overlap in meaning between soul and heart. But heart's much. Uh, it's a much more intentional metaphor, and Fred was starting to get at it. 
is the heart is really the center of life in, in, in a sense. I mean, if your heart stops, you're dead, right? I mean, obviously, if your lungs stop. But I mean, the heart is just so central because it pumps the blood. And it's kind of the center of your being. The Bible is using the word heart as kind of the center of our being, the center of where our emotions are and where our will is. We're to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and soul. That's the eternal spirit dimension of who we are. Mind, our thinking, our thought life, strength, or physical body. It's a holistic love. But back to heart. Heart is that center of who we are. It's the, it's the emotional and intentional center. It's where your will is centered. So if you go back to with a pure heart, a pure, can I put it this way, a pure intentionality. Isn't that, boy, there's a non-romantic way to talk about it. A not, but think about it. In other words, you are making the willful, intentional decision to love earnestly. It's not love with the real intent of manipulating and controlling and getting what you want. That's not love. It's not love out of grudge. Okay, I get it. I love you. That's not sincere. That's not earnest. That's faked. You've been forced to do it. So Peter is using words that are transformational. Because of your position, the first phrase of verse 22, that results from your obedience to the gospel, therefore have affection for one another with a other-centered, intentional, pure will. You're choosing to do it. I want to do it. Now, I've unpacked all that in a way that's not, it, it, it's almost um, clinical. <laughs> but I want, you to see, I want you to really grasp what Peter is saying here. You can't fake true love. You can't fake it. And you can't use love as a means to a selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent end. When I was in graduate school, Howard Hunter used to say, men, your job is to be a student of your wife. Good luck. <laughs> he's, he, if you don't know who he is, he's with the Lord now. But he's always so humorous as he nails you along the side of the head with his spiritual two-by-four. <laughs> and so Peter is just saying, because of your position, in response to the gospel, it's got to affect how you live. And the affection you have for one another should result in a, an other-centered, self-sacrificial love from the heart. An intentional act of your will because you want to do it. All right. Yes, uh, Ron, please. I, I'm, I'm kind of a graphic kind of guy, so I'm, I'm trying to picture this in my mind and I, and I think the key word might heart might be center mm -hmm. if you can move the mm -hmm. center of your will to the center of whomever you're loving 
and to me, of course, that would relate to agape love. Mm-hmm. So if you move your heart from yourself to God in obedience, then, then, then obedience isn't a chore, it's a joy. And I can see that in, in all of our relationships, especially mm-hmm. in marriage. That's really true. And I think, too, I didn't focus on that, but that, that, uh, that connects with how you said our heart moving to the center of God's heart. Um, it is it meaning love, gape love, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So that tells us that we need divine enablement to do it. I, I know you guys can't identify with this, but I'm a very selfish man. It is hard for me. It really is. It is hard for me to love like this. And, it, it, and I mean, it's one of those areas of life where every single day I really, I say, Lord, you have to, it's a student or a person at my church that I'm working with, and I say, Lord, you have to help me to love because all I want to do is take a spiritual, uh, you know, manner and hit him over the head. Would you please get your act together? It's ridiculous. Now, that's not a loving way to deal with it, is it? Not just you're not firm and, but, and directive, but you, you just... I'm glad you shared that, Jim, because I was just thinking Peter is setting the bar pretty high. Yeah. We're just supposed to love everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You have a little problem with it too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Listen, you. I'll give you my wife's phone number. If you want to call her, she will tell you all of the problems I have. Right. <laughs> well, we still belong here, but. Yes. But it's, you know, I, I know we've talked about it. There's a little pin, I forget all the letters, but it's a little pin that people wear, and it's about seven letters. And it's Be patient with me. God is not yet finished with me. I love that. You know, don't expect perfection from me, but God's at work. So just be patient. <laughs> All right, let's move on. This is getting too convicting. Verse 23. Here is an issue of translation. It really is. ESV translates it since some of you might have because. Now, Peter's connecting the two thoughts. Verse 22, verse 23. I would like to translate it because. Because... You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through or by means of the living and abiding word of God. Okay, now now connect it. Why should I love like this? Why should I have this affection for others with a a strong God-centered, self-sacrificial, other-centered love? Because God has changed you. And that's why he uses the born again phrase that comes from John 3 in the words Jesus uses when he's trying to explain to Nicodemus. You're a new person. Another biblical word for that is you've been regenerated. Another biblical word for that phrase is you're a new creation. You're a new person. And you have been born again, not of perishable seed. Now, he's following the metaphor of being born again. Not of perishable seed, like sperm, but of imperishable seed. What was the imperishable seed? The word of God has been planted in you. And he describes it by means of the living and abiding word of God. The mission statement of our church is transformation. 
We want to see Jesus transform people through God's word, prayer, and loving relationship. And this is where we get part of that. How does transformation occur? Through the word of God. You, you guys come to this study. The reason I do this study is I want to be the instrument God uses through his word to change you. I don't do that. God does that. But his word, his word is how that occurs. And then to make sure we don't miss it, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. For, it's diati in Greek, very strong causal word, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. Grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. And so Peter, that's a great, I, if, that would be one of the verses, yeah, that's a good verse to bring out of the Old Testament and bring it into this proof. The word of God remains forever. There are only two things in this world that are eternal. God's word and people. They're the only two things that are eternal. This table's not eternal. As tragic and hard as it for me to say, this coffee and coffee cup is not eternal. <laughs> I do think in the new heaven and new earth I will be able to enjoy a cup of coffee, but you know, I can't prove that. I'm being a little facetious, but he's really he's saying something that you gotta remember. The word of God is eternal. It endures forever. And because of that, because of its nature, it's the word of God, then that is what brings the transformation in your life. Because you've been born again. You've been transformed. Not, not by imperishable seed like the sperm that produces a life, but by the imperishable seed, the word of God. It's living and it's abiding. Let's take those two words apart. Living, that's not hard. It's alive. It's, it's functioning. It's not dead. What is abide? It's meno in Greek. What does abiding mean? Accountable. Say it again. Accountable. I'm still not. Accountable. 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 I have an accent. Uh, no, that's all right. No. <laughs> um, yeah, that would that would work. That would fit. Um, if something's Let's continue to think more about it. Abiding. If something's abiding, what is a synonym? If take the verb abide. Abide. What's in the, what's the synonym for abide? Reside. Okay, reside. Endures. If something's abiding, uh, there's a, there's a sense of uh, degree of permanence about it. So Peter is just trying to use words that. Don't think that this goes away. Don't think that this deteriorates. Don't think that this, this rusts away. It abides. It endures. And then he proves that by quoting from Isaiah 40. The word of the Lord endures forever. That's part, uh, right now we're talking about Tim Keller's new book. That's part as you get near the end of the book, that's part of what Tim does. In his first book, dealing with similar reason for God, he gives a strong apologetic for the word of God as enduring forever. He, he just he builds the case for it. 
And so Peter is just, Peter doesn't go into a long apologetic. He just quotes from Isaiah 40, <laughs> which tells you how the early apostolic writers looked at the Old Testament. They looked at the Old Testament as authoritative, didn't they? They looked at the Old Testament as something I can quote from and regard, and this is really important, what I'm writing is equal to what they wrote in authority. And then he adds, he concludes, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And in my Bible, what I did is I circled good news at the end of verse 25 and the term truth in verse 22. Because they are talking about the same thing. You responded in obedience to the truth. What truth? The gospel. And that's what we preach to you. And you responded to it in obedience. So it's a tremendous little passage. Is, is, its main theme is agape, of love. How we show affection to one another in a self-sacrificial, other-centered way. But it also links this transformation with the enduring word of God. And that's, that is what is so powerful, it, it seems to me. All right? Yes, Mark. So when he's talking about the non-pressurable seed, at that time, the Bible, the New Testament, was not in existence yet. Uh, well, that, now, that, that wouldn't be quite true, but the entire New Testament corpus of books uh, was was not yet completed. For example, the Gospel, uh, I mean the uh, Book of Revelation, which was written in the 90s, that wasn't written yet. But a good deal of the New Testament has been written. So there was circulating New Testament? Yes, absolutely. First, uh, the first two books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, written in A.D. 49, and the Epistle of Galatians, written in the same time, fall of A.D. 49. They're circulating very widely. Uh, Matthew comes next. Luke is very close behind. John is the latest of the four Gospels. Almost all 13, let me see if, yes, all 13 of Paul's, no, that's wrong. Ten of Paul's 13 epistles are all circulating by 56 A.D. Was he still alive? Uh, Who? Paul, at that time Paul dies in A.D. 68. When the, this book was written? Uh, no, this is Peter. Yeah, I know. Peter still... also, Peter and Paul are killed in the same wave of persecution by Emperor Nero in A.D. 68. They're both killed at the same time. This book, First Peter's written, you know, we can't give an exact, but somewhere in the early 62, 63, A.D., something like that, is when Peter writes his epistle. So, I mean, by that time, Mark, a great deal of the New Testament is written and circulating widely, um, but not all of it yet. Okay? I saw another hand out of the corner of my eye, or maybe I didn't. Yeah, Fred. When you talked in uh, verse 23 about having been born again, and I think that correlates back to 14, where as, it does. as obedient children do not conform. It the, does. The, the crux of, of that that I took out of it was that, that we are children, and we grow, and we learn, and, and you made a point, and, and uh, that it's, it's a lifelong process. That's right. That you just don't, a, when you believe and accept Christ, you just don't automatically yeah. have this whole knowledge bomb down onto you. You have to, have to work. That's why we're here. That's right. Exactly. That's right. 
And I mean, Woody has talked about this a number of times over the last several years. The importance of understanding sanctification is a process. It's a process. Justification, and that's what he's alluding to in the universe 22, our position. That's an event. That's our position. Sanctification is a process. And, and um, it, that's, that's what's hard because the process means we're getting rid of the old junk and we're replacing it with the new stuff. Ephesians chapter 4, 22, 23, and 24. And so it's just, Peter is just, he's challenging now these young believers in Anatolia, in eastern Turkey. Here's, here's God's claim now. Here's his plan. Here's his product. Now, here's the purpose for it all. And that's what chapter 2 is. The, the, other, the other part of that is that, that, that it's a call to recognize your sinful past, and then alter that response to how God wants you to respond mm. to the same situation so that you deal with your temptations in a, in a more positive and God-like fashion. Yeah. And you begin you begin to desire the change that God's bringing. You, you begin to desire it. You want to live it. It's not being, you know, God... God does not coerce us. God disciplines us to the point where we desire the change. We want to change. And so please look at verse 1. It's a very uncomfortable verse. It's not a nice verse. I wish it weren't in the Bible. He's given the product God wants to see is love. So verse 1. Here is what love is not. So, or you could translate that, therefore. Now remember, in the original text, there were no chapters. There were no verses. That was added later to make it easier to analyze. So there's no you know, chapter break. Well, now I'm going to start chapter two. That's not how Peter, when he's writing it, he just immediately goes in. So, therefore, based on what I just said, put away. Now, is that a suggestion? Is that counsel? Or is that a verb, and I'm going to use English grammar here, or is that a verb that's in the imperative mood? And all of you are saying, what in the world does that mean? It means it's a command. And who's issuing the command? Peter, the apostle. Now, ESV's done a good job of translating that. Put away. Let's talk about that verb. Put away. Willful? Do you have to have, be intentional about it? Mm-hmm. If you're going to put something away, it's intentional. It's an act of your will. Right? Right. I mean, it isn't... Let's put it another way. This is a great <clears throat> verse on sanctification. The glaze overlooking my students is now evident, so uh, let's talk about something. I want to remind you, I can't erase something that Homestead, what Homestead writes on the board is infallible and inerrant. And I can't in any way erase that. 
Isn't that right, Jim? You used to work there. In in the words of uh, it's the law of the Medes and Persians, which can't be okay. Now I want to remind you. Give me a minute, because this is we're at a very important point. I want to remind you of Philippians chapter two, verses twelve and thirteen. Work out your sanctification. The word there is soterion, which can mean justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay. First part. First of all, work out your sanctification. A passive verb? Okay, Lord, sit back. You make me holy. I'll just sit here in my rocking chair. Have a cup of Starbucks coffee. That'd be a special muffin. But I'll wait for you to do it. That is not the sense of this. Sanctification is intentional, willful act of obedience. Next verse, because God is at work. I'm writing so fast it's sloppy. And you look at it both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So these two are inextricably linked in the process of sanctification. It's not just one, it's both. These are totally linked together. God, if you put your faith in Christ, every one of you sitting around this table, this verse is telling you God is at work in your life. In what two areas? Your will. We, my lead pastor asked me to write a statement which I completed a couple of weeks ago. What do we mean by transformation? What does the Bible mean by transformation? I really worked hard on it because, I mean, it's a, an important word. It's a biblical word. What does it mean? And so I spent quite a, quite, quite a bit of time on it, and I concluded from a study that it involves three things. Transformation is God renewing our mind, our will, and our heart. That's transformation. And here's an important verse. What's God doing? He's at work in my will. Because there are a lot of things that he wants me to do that I don't want to do. I know you can't identify with that. It's hypothetical. It's abstract to you. But just kind of pretend you know what I'm talking about. It's supposed to be a joke, but no, he's laughing. It's just, I mean, every one of us struggles with this. We just don't always want to do what God wants us to do. So the Lord is our Heavenly Father, is slowly, patiently, proactively, decisively, working, that our will is brought in conformity with his, but also to do, to act. So why am I interested in this process? Why do I want to have a response of loving obedience to my Heavenly Father? Because I know he's at work in my life. So this is this is tremendous summary of what sanctification really is. And so it's in that spirit that Peter issues this. So therefore, I just explained to you this, this love and agape call upon your life that the, because the word of God has transformed you. Therefore, put away. That's this part. 
Work it out. Put it away. It's, it's, a, it's language of like taking off a jacket. You know, I, I walked into this room, I was a little bit warm. So the very first thing I did is I took off my jacket and hung it on the chair. That's put away. I put away my jacket. Please notice how he does this. The Greek was pan, all. All malice and all deceit. Why do you think he used the adjective all? Yeah. 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 When I feel like it, I'll do it. So, so I would say, put away most of the time malice. Put away most of the time when I'm feeling good and having a good day and had a couple cups of coffee. Deceit and hypocrisy. Peter says no. All. Don't rationalize. Don't manipulate. Don't connive. God is interested. All right, now, let's be brutally honest. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. They're words that are all in the New Testament. They're in Ephesians chapter 4. They're in Galatians chapter 5. One guy's called it, this is the vice list. This is the vice list. (laughs) The virtue list is the fruit of the Spirit. This This is the vice list. This is what God is interested in purging from your heart. To one degree or another, depending on, you know, it it, it is a matter of degrees, but to one degree or another, all of us know exactly what each one of these terms means. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, Slander. Some translations have that backbiting. So you look at those and you see, my goodness. So here, and it's a short vice list. Go to Ephesians or go to Galatians five, right before you get through this. It's long list, verse after verse after verse of vices, as one guy put it. So all Peter is saying is love means the absence of these things. So put them the way. I like to put it this way. That's, that's how I thought about it in my, I shouldn't say past tense, thought about it, think about it in my own life. There are old habits and old patterns that always got me into trouble. I want to get rid of those. And I want to replace them with the virtues that are sourced in the Lord. And a nice place to start thinking about that is in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the nine qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. So Peter's just reminding us, these are the things that you should be putting away now. I don't think they need to be explained unless you want me to, but you know, friend. So if you remodel your house... You tear out all the kitchen cabinets and you put in new kitchen cabinets. It's still in the same house, mm. but you put in the new kitchen cabinets, and that's mm-hmm. the, that's an excellent analogy. Yeah. So excellent you analogy. Yourself. Yeah, it's you're you're still who you are, yeah. but you've been born again, 
Now, there's a great little booklet. I, I give it uh, to uh, guys I disciple in my mentoring group at, at Grace when, when I was involved there. And um, it's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Did you ever see that little booklet? I have, a, I don't have many. I, I'll have to, I still have, I'll, I'll give, I'll bring a couple of copies next week if you want one. But it's a great, it's an older booklet. It's really an old, I think it was written in the 40s. What's My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's, it's a little bit like what Fred just said. You, you invite Jesus into your life in, in salvation. You're born again. And so do you, what does Jesus start to do? He starts to take residence in your home. And you welcome him into your kitchen. You cook a meal for him. You welcome him into your living room. And he sits down with you and he starts to use the TV programs you feel. And do the leisure time activities you do. And the author, all the author is saying is, remember... Now that you belong to Christ, he's with you in everything you're doing. He's right there with you. And he says, then you take him up to the, it's just you go through room by room, and then it ends, it's really, really, really kind of cute. It ends with, there's a, there's a room upstairs that's locked. It's your heart, remember, it's your heart. It's the room that's locked. And Jesus is like, I'd, I'd like to go into that room. Oh, no, Lord. No, there's nothing in there, Lord. No, no, I, 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 I'm the Lord of your life now. Let's open that room. And so the, the authors, okay, let's open it together. So Jesus takes your hand, and you take out the key, and you unlock it, and he pulls the door back. And it's all your hidden things that you think you're hiding from the Lord. Hidden thoughts, hidden patterns, hidden habits. And Jesus says, let's clean this up too. Isn't that great? It's, it's exactly what Peter is saying. That's why I thought of that when Fred used that analogy. That's exactly, you're, you're still you. But now you're getting rid of the old kitchen cabinets and putting new ones in. The ones that, that the Lord made for you. Well, I think we can keep that analogy working. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, these, aren't, these aren't done in hostility. These, meaning commands like this, it's for our good. Now, do I have time? Oh, yeah, we have 15 minutes. Now, look at what he does in verse 2. Like newborn infants. So like is a simile. Why use a simile newborn infant? Back to born again in verse 23. So like born again, I'm a newborn infant. Like a newborn baby. Long for this pure spiritual milk. Now, I think you get the analogy. You get the metaphor there. Like a baby, you long but spiritual milk. Getting you back to the word of the Lord endures forever, verse 25. The living and abiding word of God, verse 23. You're a new creature in Christ. Now, grow from his nourishment. Not the world's nourishment, but from the spiritual, no, the pure spiritual milk. Now, please note, ESV, it's tremendous how they do this. That, it's a result clause. That, by it, by what? By the pure spiritual milk, you may grow up into salvation. Okay, how do we understand soterion there, salvation? 
Justification or sanctification? Thank you. One of you heard my question. That's right. So, I, again, you have to ask that question. It's like asking that question in Philippians. Is he talking about justification, sanctification, glorification? So grow up. Into, so, in other words, let's, let's unpack this. It's not hard to unpack this metaphor. What's he saying? The key to spiritual growth is what? The word of God. That's the pure spiritual milk. That's the key to growth. Not Oprah. Not Ellen DeGeneres, not Dr. Phil, or any of the other gurus on television. That's not the key to spiritual growth. The key to spiritual growth is the Word of God. And that's, I'm, um, I'm not sure the word, right word's frustrated, but I guess that's the word I'll use. I, I, I've worked with men and, and young men and older men, middle-aged men all my life, and I'm always frustrated with men that think they're going to be able to grow without the Word of God as a major part of their life. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm glad that the Lord saved me, and I, I'm, I, feel so, I, I feel so liberated from all the guilt that I bore, but you know, it's like I'm satisfied with that. And I look at them, if that's what you're satisfied, praise the Lord. But the Lord has so much more for you. And this is only the beginning. And if you, if you want to grow and shed all the junk that got you into trouble in the first place, the word of God is the key. And Peter's just putting it, putting it so clearly. Growth is tied to the word of God. And if his command of verse 1 is going to be obeyed, it's necessary to have the word of God as the source of nutrients. And then he adds, undeniably alluding to Psalm 34, verse 8, since you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. I mean, you see, he's taken the metaphor, the, spirit, the, the pure spiritual milk, you've tasted it. Now what do you know? The Lord is good. That's David's great psalm in, in Psalm 40, 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You start in the word of God. You get, you taste it. Now think of the metaphor. Once you taste it, listen, once you taste a Reese's peanut butter cup, you will always want more. I, you know, my wife, uh, my wife says she's so disciplined. She loved Lay's potato chips. Absolutely loved them. So this is what she does. Every night she eats two. <laughs> I couldn't do that. She says, honey, do you want one? I said, no. Because if I eat one, I'm not just going to stop like you. I don't know how she does it. She eats two. That's what she does. I can't eat. Two. I don't know. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But Lay's potato is by far the best potato chip. <laughs> So it's, Peter is saying, you tasted the Lord. You are in his word, and you want more. You want more. The spiritual, that's why the metaphor is going to be extended from spiritual milk to the meat of the word of God. Yeah, I'm probably 
maybe something bigger than it really is, but what's the difference between the word in first in, in John one one uh, and the word here that we see, which we know is the, the, the written word. Yeah. Uh, the word of God, but it's is it, is it the same word? One is capped and the other is not. Yeah, it, it, and it's logos. In, the Greek word is logos. Now, there are a couple of places where, uh, and that's not the case here, but they'll use the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A, but don't worry, that's not here. So I think John, uh, or um, Daryl, in, in John's gospel in the beginning of chapter one, and you're correct, it's usually capitalized in English because it's being clear reference to Jesus the living word personified, incarnate, etc. And that's, um, that's why the New Testament makes also that inextricable link between the living word of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, and the inspired word, small w, which is the written word inspired by the Spirit. They're linked. And that's why Jesus says, I am the word. And in John 14, I'm the truth, I'm the way, I'm the life. No man comes. It's just unpacking all of that over and again. So, as this is an original thought with me, the written word reveals the living word. You can't have one without the other. And in a way, that's really another. And that's another way. What Peter's saying here, that the written word really does reveal the living word, which you absolutely need to sustain your spiritual life. And so it's just uh, it's it's not hard it's not hard to understand and follow through the links of this metaphor. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You get a little, you want more. And that's 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 the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. You start to taste of the Word of God, you want more. You're not satisfied any longer with milk. You want the meat, as my father used to say. You want, in Lancaster County, the meat and the potatoes. I think everybody in Lancaster County must have the highest cholesterol rate in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm being, but I, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But the Pennsylvania Dutch diet, that's what it's called, is high. Huh? I mean, it's high in everything that's cholesterol. My father used to, he loved scrapple. I don't know if you know what scrapple is. You know, scrapple is. My dad used to buy it in a block, fry it. Scrapple is—it's like injecting pure cholesterol into your blood. <laughs> and he would eat these thick pieces, and he'd fry it. Then he'd, he'd cover it with honey or cover it with molasses, and eat sausage with it. Now, just think of that. Scrapple is fat. It's—it's uh, yeah. it's the pure scraps of fat, because in Pennsylvania Dutch country they don't waste anything. You're butchering an animal, you take all the fat, put it in the vat, and fry it. It's good stuff. I mean, honestly, I mean, it is good, but if, that's why I think everyone in Lancaster County should die at age 42 of clogged arteries. But, you know, I just, it's. Uh, anyway, how did I get into that? Um, <laughs> Well, anyway, I don't remember how I got into that, but you understand the point that Peter's making, don't you? Yeah, I get that's it. The meat, okay. Now, in all right, any other questions or thoughts about it's it's a it's a very important 
a cluster of, of, of two verses, verse 2 and verse 3. It's, it's, it's a great passage. Would it be fair, actually, in this chapter, that sometimes when he refers to the Word, he is referring to the living Word of God, which is the book, and also referring to Jesus Christ at the same time, or not? Uh, in a way, that's related to Daryl's question, but I, I, um, I'm, I'm not... I'm not sure that uh, his intent is that we're thinking of Jesus as the living, that he wants us to be thinking about Jesus as a living word. I think he's stressing the written word as the key to the spiritual growth that the Lord is calling us to. And I, um, now, I mean, it, it, there is, in, 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 to an extent, it, it's hard always to separate the two because, as I said in talking to Daryl, the written word reveals the living word. And the living word, through his spirit, inspired the written word. I saw them, they are so tightly linked. But I do think he is calling on us here to particularly focus on the written word as the source of our spiritual nourishment, which reveals the living word in greater clarity uh, that we all need. Now, what starts to unfold in verse 4 is this quite remarkable new metaphor. And it's that we are the temple of God. As you come to him, comma, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, I'm going to stop there because we're running out of time, but I want to introduce this. This is profound. Now, I want you to start thinking with me about it from this vantage point. If someone in a let's just round it off in AD sixty, someone says temple, priesthood, and no matter where you are in the Eastern Mediterranean, what will you think of? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Temple Mount, the high priest. Now this is in the AD sixties, so the temple hasn't been destroyed yet by Rome. Peter's introducing something here that is literally for the first century, Christian or Jew, is mind-blowing. Now, after A.D. 70, and in the decades and centuries beyond it, the depths of this become more and more clarified. Because the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 60, I hope you understand the spirit in which one is irrelevant. In A.D. 60, it was irrelevant. Yeah, but I mean, why else is it irrelevant? Because in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the high priest, offered a once-for-all sacrifice, right? Said that the blood of bulls and goats is no longer needed. Now, I'm paraphrasing the point. So in AD 60, the temple of God in Jerusalem was irrelevant. Wasn't the audience also Gentiles? 
Yeah, and there some Jews are mixed into it, but yeah, that's right, that's right. But remember, they, they would read the Old Testament. Sure. So, I mean, you're right. But what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to see here is, Peter is dumping something on them in AD 60 that would have been mind-boggling for them. Because he's using Old Testament language now to define a New Testament truth. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let's extend this. After Rome destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple in Temple Mountain, A.D. 70, where's the new temple? In us. In us. We are the new temple of the living God. Corporately in the church and individually as members. We are the new temple. The high priesthood, gone. We are the new priest. That's why Martin Luther, you know, in the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, Martin Luther would declare over and over again the priesthood of all believers. Which in the 16th century was as profound because of institutionalized Roman Catholicism for a thousand years, was as profound as what Peter's declaring here. You see, the old is gone. Even in 86, when the temple's still there and the priesthood is still there, it's irrelevant because of Jesus. This is part of the new order of things. This is part of the, the new era. I used to say new age, but that doesn't work anymore because that conjures up a whole worldview that's wrong. But it's a new era. And what is it? There's a new temple and there's a new priesthood. And you're both. Now, honestly, I'm sure you've read this before. Yeah, okay. Do you, I'm trying to get you to understand, do you realize how utterly mind-boggling and profound and deep this is for these people to hear this truth. This is part of your new identity. If you're a Jew or a Gentile, it applies to both of you. So Paul, sorry, Peter, Peter's beginning to unpack a truth that is one of the deepest truths in the New Testament. Now, I can't prove this, but that's one of the reasons why I think God allowed Rome to destroy the temple in A.D. 70. To make sure it was crystal clear that the old era is gone. It's irrelevant. It's, it's not that it was bad. Good night. Paul says it was good. It was righteous. It was perfect. Romans 70 says that. The problem was human sin. And so Jesus came, fulfilled it all, and now it's irrelevant. It's not saying anything about its character or its nature. It's just saying when Jesus came and his death, burial, and resurrection, it's no longer needed. So then where's the new temple? The Shekinah glory of God. Now, I hope I'm not pushing this. Resides in you through the Holy Spirit so that you can be full of grace and truth and represent him. Now, that's, that's an exciting thought. That's your agenda. That's your assignment. That's your responsibility. Doesn't that really raise the bar as far as the expectation? Absolutely. Of, of being a believer. It, 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 it's right. And 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 then the 
what I think is the exciting responsibility and duty to represent my king and to represent my high priest, while these titles Jesus had, to the world. And so Peter is, just, Peter is laying out something uh, that Paul doesn't do this. Paul talks about us being the temple of God. But Peter, oh, I'm sorry, I got it. The, the notebooks are closing. Everybody says it's time to leave. Uh, your body language is telling me I'm over time, and I apologize for that. So tomorrow we'll pick right up with, ver- I mean now, next Wednesday, we'll pick right up with verse 4. So I hope I've whetted your appetite to come back. Mm-hmm. Rather, than, rather than raising the bar, it's more the revelation of the honest that we have as being a believer. Well, yeah, and, and the, 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 the willful embracing of this wonderful responsibility, mm-hmm. and, it, and it challenges us then to take this seriously. Because this is what this is how the Lord looks at me. This is how the Lord wants me to to represent Him. And you say, boy, it really matters. Then I'm really important to Him. I'm one of the living stones. So anyway, well, you got to quit, Lord. Thank you for uh, well, thank you for these men first of all, and that they're willing to come out uh, to um, this Bible class in the middle of a Wednesday in their busy schedules. I'm so grateful that Home Instead allows us to meet here, uh, and they're so gracious and magnanimous in that provision. Certainly, Lord, we will continue to ask you to bless them for their generosity and hospitality to us. But thank you, too, for uh, the Apostle Peter. Thank you for you, Holy Spirit, inspiring him to write this very, very important New Testament book. It is a challenging book. It's almost like every single verse and almost every single word has important truth to teach us. And that's why we're trying to take our time, Lord, in going through the book. Uh, we've, we've just realized again, we're reminded again of how important we are to you. We were part of your plan. You have now been developing your product of hope and reverence and holiness and love in our lives so that now we can be part of your program. And a part of your program is we're the new temple. We're the new priests. We don't need mediators. We don't need anyone coming. We have 24-7 access to you. And we're now to represent you as the King of kings and Lord of lords to a world in rebellion against you that desperately needs the hope that you bring to life. So, Lord, just help us to represent you well. Be with the men and all their responsibilities. Give them your joy. And again, for your your presence within us, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you.